I'm Stacey Gross, and this is Two Moms Day Drinking. Debbie Sumner's son, Josh, died at the age of 15. Born one month early, Josh suffered from interstitial pulmonary disease, which causes inflammation and eventually scarring on the lungs. Debbie spent 15 years of her life worshiping Josh for the entirety of his. But that didn't stop when Josh passed away. In the process of editing this episode, it almost felt cruel, some of the questions that I asked, but Debbie bore them with the same stoicism that she describes in Josh. And there are a lot more points in this interview where I could have cut out some dead air and chose not to, because I think there is almost more in Debbie's silence than there is in her words. But the value contained within her answers is immeasurable. 10 years after his death, Debbie wound up writing a book about her son called Taming Josh's Dragon. And you can find that book on Amazon and on barnesandnoble.com. And I will post links to Debbie's social media, as well as links to where you can purchase her book. It's a fabulous book. She gave me a copy and I have been reading it at night. I'm about two thirds of the way through. Um, and I am about 150% through all of the tissues that I own. The loss of a child for a parent is one of the most unbearable losses in this world and one of the cruelest, but somehow Debbie manages to bring joy and light to the darkest of subjects. And for that reason alone, I cannot recommend enough that you run to Amazon or barnesandnoble.com and pick up a copy for yourself. So this book, you said you've been writing it for eight years. Yes. Yeah, it's been a real challenge. I got medical records from Warren General and from Dr. McConnell, who was Josh's pediatrician. Right. And he helped me get medical records from Pittsburgh Children. Now, he also went to Buffalo Children. That was back in the early 80s. You know, that was Record keeping was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So once I started going over the medical records to kind of give me a timeline, it began to be difficult because I was reading some things that I wasn't aware of, really? of course, because it is the medical record right, itself, right. but also things that maybe uh, for self-preservation that I just was not aware of at uh-huh. the time. So I have had to push it aside yeah. multiple times. That's completely understandable. And I have started to read it. As an actual book, not the manuscript. So when did it come out? Like the first time that you held the book and saw the book? It was in January that I actually, yeah. like the second week of January. Oh, wow. Yeah. Exciting. You know, it's very eye-catching. Yeah. It's a beautiful uh, cover. Yeah, I love the I love the cover. She did a great job. Yeah. I'm going to for sure, I'll put links up to it and put some pictures up of it and stuff for okay. you. So yeah. Yeah. We'll get you great. some and It's not available in bookstores right. but it's available online yeah like amazon and stuff <clears throat> right yeah. Yeah. so tell me tell me the story of josh and i know that i did this interview um for the paper but i'm not with the paper anymore and this is like okay. a whole new project so okay tell me all about josh Again. well he was born in 1981 with immediately there were problems he had to be put on a ventilator in Warren and then uh, he was transported to Buffalo Children's right away and since I'd had a c-section I couldn't travel for two weeks 
which was awful, and see him. Then after two weeks, we started going up uh, every weekend. And that was difficult, too, because there were times where, you know, they would take uh, blood from his wrist mm-hmm. for, you know, the oxygen levels, so I would hold him for that. Uh, they had to put a scalp vein in mm-hmm. when they put him on a ventilator, and I held him for that. And, I mean, it was just trauma after trauma for this poor little Right. Was kid. he premature? I can't remember. Um, well, they said he was born on his uh, expected date, but uh-huh. they did say that he was a month early. So, really? Yeah. So the dates were wrong on that. Yeah, all kinds of problems. He he couldn't eat. He had a nasogastric tube. He had to just lift a syringe yeah. to let things drip in slowly and wow. on oxygen yeah, he had a tough time. He was four months old when he finally came home. And in the 80s, everything was so different. I mean, now they really, facilities are designed so that moms and babies can be kept together, but that wasn't the case in the 80s. Right. Not at that time, no. They did have a room where we could be together, but uh, he was so ill that mm-hmm. we just weren't able yeah. to do that. We put him in a little incubator and on oxygen. And it was um, Valentine's Day weekend where... We thought we were going to lose him. He was in the little little tent. His lips were blue. And then when it came time, after four months, well, he got an infection. They didn't want all the little kids in the NICU right. to catch it. So they, initially he was in uh, an isolation room, but then they got him out of NICU and put him in his own room, which was a good step, but it was traumatic for me because the nurses weren't always right there. there. But we did see him in the last month uh, improve. When he was there for three months, he had an open lung biopsy to finally determine what this was. Kept testing for cystic fibrosis and multiple times. It's a sweat test and it's hard for kids to sweat. They have to wrap them up in plastic. But finally they determined that it was desquamative interstitial pneumonitis. So that started a different track for us. What age was he when they finally were able to determine that? He was three months old. Three months, okay. Still in. So I think when he was maybe three or four years old, Dr. Kropp, who was in charge of the lung clinic up there, moved to Columbia in New York. So we lost a connection. And Dr. McConnell just started his practice when about the time Josh came home. Right. In fact, he had told us originally that Josh was his first patient. Oh my Warren. God, are you kidding me? Like yeah. I can't even I can't even imagine I was born in eighty three, but my whole life, you know, it's been Dr. <laughs> McConnell's office. Yeah. Yeah. Um it, it was yeah, it was really a, a connection there. Yeah. Um but he came from Pittsburgh Children's, so that's where he referred us to the pulmonary clinic down there. So that's when we started our long-term relationship with Pittsburgh Children's, which was just wonderful. We really had great connections with the pulmonologists there. That's good. Yeah. So you guys were able to work as a team, and they kept you in the loop. Right, right. And part of what, when Dr. McConnell gave me his records, uh, he gave me the letters that the pulmonology clinic that oh, sent okay. him after our visits. Right. And reading some of those was pretty traumatic, too. Because okay. I remember the one that eventually they said, uh, Josh is going to need to go on the transplant list, and we don't believe he realizes how critical this is. He might not make the wait. Sometimes it was a two-year wait. And that just, reading it, you know, at yeah. this point, 
you know, it, it was a shock. So I just slogged through all of it, as difficult as it was, and there were some big downs. Yeah. You know, lots of backups. Mm-hmm. I I made my dedication. I wrote it for a whole list of, of people who could benefit from this. Parents of a child with life-threatening illness. Parents of a child who requires or has had transplant. Parents who have lost a child. All the courageous people on the entire spectrum of organ and tissue donation and transplant. Organ and tissue donors and their families. Patients being considered for transplant, those on the transplant waiting list, organ and tissue transplant recipients, families who lost a loved one following transplant, families who lost a loved one while waiting on the list, and no donor can became available, yeah. and dedicated to Josh, too. Yeah. And I have a friend who read this, and she said, I mean, very unexpected, who could benefit. She said her mother lost a baby before she was even born, and it gave her insight yeah. to her mother's feelings and yeah. how she coped with and lived the rest of her life with with that. Yeah, that's a fascinating so. concept. I think about when I go back and listen to episodes of the podcast, I'm thinking someday the girls are going to hear that, and maybe they'll have a little bit better understanding of, you know, like my parenting as they get older. Right, right. <laughs> and I think that will help. Yeah. I think that's very interesting. Yeah. So, and it, you know, it also helped me to frame this and get it onto paper and to kind of honor his memory. Right. Because I've had lots of input from friends and family and his teachers mm-hmm. uh, commenting on as ill as he was, how he went on, how he was courageous and kept going and as long as he could. And he came home at four months then. How, how old was he when he did pass away? He was 15. 15. Half, yeah. So you had 15 years yes. of getting to know yes. this amazing kid. Well, I I met some people uh, in a parent's bereavement group. And I said to this mom, she had just lost a baby, had a stillborn two weeks before. I mm-hmm. said, I'm so sorry you didn't get to know your son. She said, well, I feel your loss was more because you had him for such a long time. And it kind of made me think it gave me a different perspective. Yeah. And made me grateful for the time that we had. Yeah. Do you feel like it would have been harder or easier if you had been in that mother's position? Like, have you ever thought about that? I haven't because I I guess I haven't been in that position. Right. But I can understand what she means. Yeah. Because you've known your child for yeah. 15 years. Yeah. You've bonded for 15 years. Right. I, I saw him before he was taken to Buffalo for maybe three or four minutes. Mm-hmm. And then... Yes, after we were able yeah. to go up and believe this yeah. is my child. And I do say in the acknowledgments what brought me to write this was yeah. actually Holly Stimmel. I don't know if you know her. I know her, um, but I haven't had a lot of interactions with her. Um, I think my mom knows her. You should. Yeah. And she's just such a wonderful, calm, gentle person. Yeah. And... Josh came through when I went to her. Josh came through, and maybe it was a year or two after I first met her. He's saying, you need to write a book. Really? I said, a book about what? Mm. About us. And so that's when I first started considering it. And I would go back to her maybe once a year, and Mm -hmm. he's saying, 
when are you going to start this? <laughs> so he was on you. <laughs> he was. This was on assignment. Do this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hard. It's sometimes very difficult. Yeah. But that's actually how I got started on. I'm, I am so glad I did it. And a lot of people have given me really great feedback about it. Yeah. And say now they understand. Because you can't just talk about this kind right. of stuff. They didn't right. really know the background. Right. Um, you need to be able to take your time and explain yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So they can appreciate right. what we both went through right. and how we came out of it and yeah. then how I went on after he was gone. So As he was growing up, did he have a lot of questions for you? I mean, he must have had a lot of questions about his own health and... Did he have, um, not really, no? because as we went on, uh, and I remember it was Buffalo Children's at first, he was probably three mm-hmm. or four and we, I saw a little boy in a wheelchair who was kind of reclining. He couldn't even sit up and I didn't say anything in front of this, this patient, but I said afterwards, do you know how lucky you are? You can run around and play with yeah. your friends and, and I would reinforce that mm-hmm. and let him do as much as he was able to. I mean, he hunted and fished with his dad, and he bowled. He got into karate when he was three. That's awesome. You probably remember that. Yeah. Um, and he was a second-degree black belt. That's really cool. I do remember you telling me that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I'm so proud. And, again, I've had even um, some of the people he had karate with mm-hmm. admired him and how he was able to go on despite this disease until it came to the point where right. he was. So tell me a little bit about the the condition that he had. Refresh me on that. Well, it's DIP, disquamative interstitial pneumonitis. Mm-hmm. And it's, you'll hear it described as disquamative interstitial pneumonia. It was just an interstitial disease. Mm-hmm. Didn't allow, it made the lungs stiff and it didn't allow him to get the air back out so it trapped okay trapped air and it trapped mucus in his lungs so before he left the hospital we had to learn to do different things for him you know put in different positions and do pt on his chest so he could get that coughed out he had treatments every about every four hours that we had to do and and you had to time the treatments with the meals because if he ate too soon or too close to the treatments then he could vomit and aspirate yeah it was a real challenge yeah and for any mom on top of it <laughs> so yeah he had the disease and he dealt with it but we uh, we had lots and lots of tests and mm-hmm. every time he went to pittsburgh he would have a pulmonary function test and mm-hmm. uh, you know they of course would check the oxygen levels and and track those and there were so many but you know you asked about questions i don't i don't think he asked very much he might have to the pulmonologist but i think he pretty much knew you know how it was going because they were honest with him right was it did you have any kind of once you realized that this was going to become you know a part of your parenting experience did you come up with like a plan for how you were going to talk to him or if he asks this question how am I going to or did you kind of take it as it came oh we took it as it came because they were the pulmonologists were very honest now when we were still going to Buffalo when he was two and three I remember Dr. Krupp saying there could be a lung transplant in his future and Uh I went right yeah 
not for us, you know, right. until it became reality. It was something we had to file away. So, yeah, it was, it was pretty difficult watching him, but he was very tough. He was stoic, which sometimes is not good. No, he didn't talk a lot or... Not about... His, not about, not about the problems. No, yeah. no. Because he lived with it and it was normal. Right. It was his normal. Right. Until it uh, became a real problem for him. It was That was pretty challenging to watch him go through that. And struggle. I mean, he'd already developed all these things that he loved. And mm-hmm. was did he have to start to give those up a little bit? He did. Because mm-hmm. he just was out of breath. Mm-hmm. There's only so much you can do. And right. There's a saying, when you can't breathe, nothing else matters. Right. Yeah, he learned to deal with it and, again, was stoic uh, to the point where the doctor said to tell him, you can't, you can't do that anymore. You have to tell us when you have problems, what they are. He struggled with that. He did. <laughs> he did. <laughs> what else was he like? Tell me a little bit more about him as he grew up. What, what kinds of personality traits did he have? Oh, gosh, he was just a wonderful kid. And I have this in the book. Um, I have Taming Josh's Dragon on Facebook. I oh, yeah. have put some quotes into that page, mm-hmm. too. And this is just an example. When he went down, one of the many times that he was admitted mm-hmm. for days and days at a time, I something had gone into my, flown into my eye. And I think this was when the helicopter came to pick him up. Something had gone into my eye, and I had to drive to Pittsburgh and mm-hmm. follow the helicopter. Down. And I think it was two weeks later when I came home, finally I had made an appointment and went to the eye doctor, and they had to remove a foreign body. Mm-hmm. When I came home, I had a patch on my eye, and he saw me and laughed, <laughs> went into his room, and he has a parrot yeah. he put on my shoulder. <laughs> She's a pirate. Yes. Here's your here's your parrot, Long John Silver. Just you know, so funny and good sense of humor. And, um, one time he went he went to dinner with his dad after we were divorced, and the waitress took his order mm-hmm. and turned to his dad and said, "And what will your grandpa have?" <laughs> so that was a good joke between yeah. them. Yeah, I bet. That one probably never yeah. went away. <laughs> well, another time we went, uh, I think it was Peppermill, and mm-hmm. his dad said, we were all together at, at that time, his dad said, if you can tell me who's on a $50 bill, you can have it. Ooh. And he said, Grant. So we had to give him that. <laughs> <laughs> so he was smart, too. <laughs> yeah, I, how do you know that? <laughs> it's fun to watch you talk about him because your face just lights up as soon as... Oh, gosh. You yeah. And again, I've had so much wonderful input from all different kinds of people. What kinds of things have you heard? Well, I had um, a problem with Atlantic Broadband, so somebody had to come in. And this guy was, geez, almost seven feet tall. I know exactly who you're talking about because he's come to my house before for Atlantic Broadband. Yeah, Yeah. And he was was in the family room in the basement, and he apparently had looked at, we have a corner cabinet with all kinds of trophies, awards, and... 
weapons and things. He said, are you Josh's mom? Ah. Yes. And he went to school and he was a friend of Josh's. Really? And he spoke to me, to me for about 45 minutes. Oh, that's awesome. And, you know, told me things that they used to do. Yeah. And they all admired him. They watched out for him at school. Oh, that must have been a relief to hear as a mom. Yes. It was was so wonderful. They would carry his books when he wasn't feeling well. Mm -hmm. They had a teacher who let them all sit in his room until Josh could catch his breath and Mm -hmm. felt better. Mm -hmm. Wow, what wonderful stories. Yeah. It's really... He had good friends. Yeah, really rewarding. You know, they just loved him. He sounds like a lovable person. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yes, he was. Yeah. And so, at what point did they did he need the transplant, and what how did well, that all come about? When he was twelve, they started talking about we're going to need to do um, an evaluation. And at mm-hmm. that point, when they did transplant evaluations, it took three or four days. He had to be admitted to the mm-hmm. hospital, and that was in August. Mm-hmm. And so, in November, finally, we got to the point where yeah, he was admitted. And they did all the, oh my gosh, all kinds of, you know, medical testing, yeah. CTs, nuclear medicine, all this kind of stuff. Then he had a, um, a psychiatric or a, a psycho- psychology, right. a psychologist talked to him and she talked to us first mm-hmm. separately and then she talked to him. And afterwards I said, how did it go? He said, she asked me if I knew where I was. I said, it says right there on the wall, Pittsburgh Children's Hospital. Uh, duh. <laughs> yeah. So he passed the test. Yeah. And he was listed in November. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, we got a call in April. Mm-hmm. By the time we got down there, he was, he had, he was on the stretcher. He had his labs done. He had an IV in. Right. And they found that the patient's lungs had vomit. So... Yeah, we had I can't even COVID. imagine a word to describe that feeling. That apparently happens a lot. Really? Sometimes it's three or four tries before you find really? viable organs. Wow. So we were called again in July, oh. and that one was a go. Good. And you can't imagine sitting in that waiting room for hours upon hours yeah. waiting. Because they had described how they were going to do this. It's oh. a clamshell. Yeah. And they open it up this way. Yeah. And take the lungs out. Yeah. You know, they're all machined. Right. Filters the blood and, you know, your mind just goes. Right. I don't even think that you can, like, process it in that moment. Do you feel like you did or did you just kind of take it in and. No, it was just traumatic being there and and knowing. And, you know, there's that hope. Yeah. Everything's going to be okay. And so, yeah, it was. Lots of challenges during that yeah. time. I remember he was on a, a ventilator for, I think, a couple of days after surgery. And then it was in an isolation room and then came out into the general yeah. intensive care. When I went in in the morning, he was leaning on the table that's across the bed. Right. And the most terrified look that I've ever seen, Mom, am I going to die? Oh, God. He was in so much pain because yeah. he hadn't asked for pain medications. I just panicked. So, you know, he had to learn when you feel this starting, then you need to ask for pain medication. Not be so stoic. Exactly. (laughs) That was the point where they told him. So it was wonderful then to be in his own room. Mm -hmm. And there was a shower there and I could sleep. They had a chair Mm -hmm. that reclined and 
I could sleep there and watch him. And that's when, you know, all the medications, mm-hmm. of course. Uh, and he became diabetic because of the medications right. that he was taking. But that was just a temporary thing. Mm-hmm. And the hormones, he was 13, so yeah. the hormones were going, and oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. It was a real challenge. <laughs> I was in I tears a lot of the time. Oh, I can't imagine. <laughs> Had to step out. Yeah, we made it through that. And so after the transplant, how how did things go? Did, did things almost seem like they were going to be normal then for a while? I thought so. Mm-hmm. I had hoped so. And now I had done some research prior to and found there was uh, something called obliterative bronchiolitis. That does not sound... And no. And after, I think it was four or five months after transplant, they would do a biopsy. Mm-hmm every month right go down yeah and when they came out i was in the waiting room and they came out and said we found a literal bronchiolitis my heart just oh. fell just it's the beginning of the end and he was only with us another year and a half mm-hmm. after that you know he played he played baseball with the guys again yeah. after he had healed up the following summer he played baseball and you know, did as much as he could, got mm-hmm. back into karate. I have wonderful pictures in yeah. here. He, his make-a-wish had to be delayed because he was so sick. Mm-hmm. So after transplant, he was transplanted in July, and in October, make-a-wish took him to Charlotte. Um, he wanted to see um, and meet Dale Earnhardt. Oh, okay, yeah. So he got to do that. He went into the driver's meeting. Oh, wow. He met the managers. I bet he was beaming the oh, next time he God. saw him. Yeah, we have a picture of him with, <laughs> with Earnhardt. He just, yeah. he just loved him. Yeah. I was kind of hoping he'd you know, want to see Garth Brooks because he liked Garth Brooks. <laughs> yeah, that would have been nice for mom, too. <laughs> yeah. But this was his choice, yeah. and that's what he wanted yeah, to absolutely. do. Now they're up to, they're together. Racing, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. I bet he's tearing it up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, he liked all kinds of you know, four-wheelers and motorcycles. Mm-hmm. Liked to mow the lawn or anything with a motor on yeah. it. You know. Typical boy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Typical boy. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of him and how he fought. Mm-hmm. Uh, on his last day in the ER... I didn't know this until months later, but of course he knew many of the people there because he'd had mm-hmm. lots of tests there too. Yeah. And this gal from respiratory therapy stayed with him. He was leaning on the table across the stretcher with that same look in his eye. Really? So I said, I'm going to co call Pittsburgh ahead and send a helicopter up. Mm-hmm. And. They took him into one of the regular ER rooms, mm-hmm. and that's where he passed away. Mm-hmm. Now, Cindy then, months later, stopped in my office and said, I want to tell you what Josh said to me after you left to call you know, for a helicopter. He said, don't tell my mom. I don't want her to cry. Oh, my God. <sighs> so he knew he was going. Yeah. I That just, yeah. just breaks my heart. But he wasn't thinking of himself first. He was thinking of you. Yeah, yeah. What a guy. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, and I wrote, he died in May, and the following March, mm-hmm. I woke up in the middle of the night with these lines rhyming. 
Really? I had to get up and go to the computer and write this down. And it evolved over like eight or nine months into, I called it Ode to Josh. And that's in here too. How, how did the writing process, how long had he been gone when you started writing then? He was 15. That was in 97 when he passed away. And I think this was probably close to 10 years. I can't remember off the top of my head. So it it took a good 10 years just to sort of process and get to the point. Well, to even consider it. I only considered it because Holly suggested that he was telling (laughs) me this. He gave you that assignment. (laughs) So, So, and again, after I started, I, you know, I have stacks of medical records, inches deep. Yeah. Okay, I have to put this away because there was stuff in there that I did not know this. Yeah. How did you dose that for yourself? Did you, I mean, did you have to go to therapy or did, what, how did you, how did you cope with the trauma almost of writing this book? Well, I did go to Frankie John a couple times Uh and she gave me some great advice, Uh although I slid back multiple times, but she said, just ask God to help you through this, stay calm, mm-hmm. you know, say a prayer before you start, sit mm-hmm. at your computer. And that worked until I got the medical records yeah. out. And you know, even reminding myself and saying a prayer of just, oh gosh, I can't, I it's can't a gut do this feeling. Right now. Yeah, it's a yeah. gut feeling. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so you just had to listen to your own. Um, I had to do it at, on my own time. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, I mean, that's a really wise, a really wonderful way to make use of writing. I, I am a hundred percent, um, I, um, advocate of writing as a, as a therapy. So yeah, I'm sure it was therapeutic, but also really just super difficult. And it was, it was both. Yeah. It was both. But I, again, have gotten wonderful reviews from friends mm-hmm. and family and it has made me feel, well, maybe this was a good thing. Maybe yeah. I can do this. Maybe I did a good job. Yes. Uh, Had you ever written anything before? No. No? No. Brand new to writing, too. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's a good thing sometimes, too, though, because you're not restricted by all these things that you think you know about right. how to write a book. You know, you right. just write right. it. I've learned a lot. Yeah. I've learned a lot uh, during this process. Yeah. Um, yeah, it has been freeing. Yeah. All that. Yeah. All that. It's been, oh, gosh, probably four years since I interviewed you for the paper. At least. Yeah. Four so you were five. just in kind of in the middle of it then. Right. Yeah. And uh, that was about uh, close to the heart, the Transport yeah. Support Group. Yeah. And I just closed that down mm-hmm. um, in like December. Oh, really? I have to put something in the paper to make yeah. it official. But right. After 20 years, I was ready to. To be done. Now, did you start that support group yourself? Yes. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, it was. Our first meeting was in October 1999. He passed away in May of 97. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had a friend who really encouraged me and walked me through mm-hmm. um, starting the group. And uh, I really loved it. The people were wonderful. They were grateful to be here. Yeah. Grateful for donors mm-hmm. for in order for them to be here. Yeah. I um, had some people that were 20-some years out. Really? With transplants. One oh. lady was a heart... One was a liver, one was a kidney, and all three of those people were, yeah, more than 20 years post-transplant, which is astounding. Yeah. But, again, they were all wonderful people and understanding and 
supportive of me too. Right. So this whole thing was was uh, therapeutic. Yeah. That I could help other people who, right. who've been through the same thing or going to go through the same right process. Yeah. So I I completely understand that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That's the whole point of the podcast is just to to reach out to moms and, and parents, dads, anybody, um, people who've lost kids, people who have chosen not to have kids, just anybody who has a relationship to parenting as a concept. Right. But right. I think it's, it can be really isolating no matter what your situation is. So having, you know, a, a group of people who or even hearing one person's story. And so knowing that, alone. well, maybe I can make it through. Yep. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I was, and I mentioned this in the book too. I was at one point tempted to follow him. Really? Yes. And since then, I have had a friend say, I am so glad you didn't close that garage door. Because I decided how I was going to do it. And you had it all I planned. I just can't go on. Yeah. And I had to talk to somebody at that point, yeah. too, who helped me. And this lady had lost a son. Well, I guess if she can make it, maybe I can. And I had to reinvent myself. Yeah, absolutely. I had to decide what I was going to do. And Close to the Heart was, mm -hmm. was part of that and helping other people. So I felt like I was worth something because that was my job. Right. Keeping this child right. well and alive. Right. And that just ended so quickly. It's so... It's fine. It's cruel almost, I mean, to go through all that and then just have it be so... Right. Cut and dried, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> grief must be so intense. I, I don't... I don't know. Yeah. It's just something hopefully everybody will get from this book that you can be strong enough and you're I think <clears throat> the major thing was reinventing yourself. Mm -hmm. What do I do now? Right. And what can make make it worth? Right. Make it worth surviving. Right. But it so, was a, it was close to the heart. <clears throat> yeah, for twenty years I was mm. I was glad I did that. But yeah. I was I was yeah. ready that's a lot of work done. too yeah that's a lot of work to organize and keep it going and it is it is but it was rewarding absolutely what was your favorite thing about being a well i not what was what is your favorite thing about being a mom oh um, just having such a delightful child yeah i you know i can't tell you he was i remember he was always small for his age <laughs> because of the lung disease yeah he burned up all his calories breathing, right. so he was always small. At the time of his death, he was 15, and he was maybe 75 pounds. Wow. Yeah. Wow. He just could not right. thrive. But I remember sitting on the couch beside him, and he had his cowboy hat on. We were watching uh, country music TV, yeah. and he had his arm up around my shoulder. <laughs> Oh my gosh! <laughs> How wonderful you yeah. are! <laughs> you know, just caring about other people. Yeah, I just just a lovely child. <laughs> I have such a hard time with mine, and I I um I don't know. I guess, and this may be a hard question, and you may not want to answer it. But how do you feel about um? the conversations that are going on and the arguments and all of the things that, that moms seem to fight about these days to you. Well, what comes to my mind is the live birth abortions. Mm -hmm. How can you disrespect a life? 
enough to do that, especially when there are people out there that would love to adopt. I can't imagine how they would stop a life and feel that they could go on to the next day doing something that is so disrespectful. And, you know, I, I saw a lot of little kids in that NICU yeah. back in 81 and yeah. 82. Some went home. One went home when she was 18 months old right. before she ever went home. That's... And how traumatic on one side for the nurses right. to lose her, and how traumatic it would be for her right. to lose that To have to readjust. Yeah. I mean, all of your attachment and everything is, you know. There were some who didn't go home. Mm -hmm. So, and that was our greatest fear. Mm -hmm. I think it's hard for moms and it's hard for moms to hear someone say you should be grateful in that moment when we're like struggling with them. But I really feel like we need to stop and remind ourselves. And yeah. And how much you learn yeah. from a child, especially who's chronically ill. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of Matty Stepanek. Mm -mm. He was on Oprah and he was in a wheelchair his whole life. He had a disease that I think he lost two or three other siblings. Eventually his mom died after he did. But what a child. Yeah. He had written poetry, you know, very young, written poetry, intelligent person. Mm -hmm. I just can't help but think kids who somehow sense they're going to be here for a short time mm -hmm. have to pack all this life in. Mm -hmm. And I, I think Josh did that. I think a lot of other kids yeah. did too. You just have to appreciate, yeah. appreciate this child who is here teaching you lessons yeah. at the same time. You may not realize it. But what a teacher he yeah. was. Do you ever get lessons now? Like, do you ever um, notice an association or see something or have a moment where you're like, oh, where you think of him and a lesson that he might be sending you? I always do. Yeah. I always think of him. <laughs> I have another funny story you may yeah. cut out. But when I went to Holly's a few years ago, he always came to her in the cowboy hat cowboy boots and like a duster because we did go to Albuquerque when he was maybe six or seven he really? didn't have the whole outfit he had the, the whole deal and, yeah said, he's coming to me I see him in a cowboy hat I said yeah that's it that's well him. this one time he came he was wearing chaps <clears throat> and at the end of our session she said he's she laughed she said he's saying I'm done he turned around and had a pair of buttons <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah, that's him. <laughs> you got him right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He sounds awesome. So, uh, yeah. He he was and he is. He's still a teacher. Mm -hmm. And through the book now. Absolutely. Absolutely. What's been the most rewarding thing about writing it? Um, is it kind of just, is it having everything there? I feel like when I write, I, I now have all these words on the page that I can then deal with as opposed to these thoughts churning around in my head. And that's why I've always liked writing. It was, it was partly that. It's been, again, very rewarding hearing my friends and family mm -hmm. comments about that. Mm -hmm. Wow, I never knew that about you. And it's not a conversation you can hold right. and tell the story. Right. But, you know, they tell me that it's well written mm -hmm. and I've heard it so many times that I'm thinking, well, maybe it is. Well, maybe it is. <laughs> yeah. It must be. But I think he was at my side the whole time. Yeah. Helping me with the stories. Yeah. And I wanted to intermix the dark in with the funny yeah. stuff. So I tried to put as much wonderful, as many wonderful experiences. 
as I could recall, because it's been a while. And you seem like you kind of cling to the light side of things, and you um, you make use of all the happy memories. and Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And people will come up to me and tell me some of their memories, and it's, that is so rewarding. I used to talk to groups uh, like the Lions Club and different, you know, different groups like that, mm-hmm. and I would end by saying the reason that I did these these speaking engagements was to encourage people please become a donor there are not enough donors people are dying every day people waiting on the list Mm -hmm. and people are really i have a little button that says don't take your organs to heaven heaven knows when they can hear yeah absolutely so afterwards when i talked to the lions club well at the end of of the speech i always said i have a wonderful letter saying thanks to the generosity of you and your family, there is a three-month-old baby boy, born blind, who can now see. That's amazing. Yes. That is amazing. Uh, That is so rewarding. And, you know, you can imagine the little girl that donated her lungs to Josh, Mm -hmm. hopefully she was also able to donate kidneys and heart and and liver. And how many many lives can you touch? How many letters do those parents have? Yeah. And how rewarding that is. That must be. Yeah. So I had teachers come up to me afterwards mm-hmm. uh, from the Lions Club and, and thank me for speaking and told me about their experiences mm-hmm. with Josh and how he went on. He was ill, obviously, but yeah. he went on. He yeah. was courteous to people. That's amazing. That's such a, um, like a dying personality trait, yeah. I feel like. Yeah. Um, and then when people are going through hard times, it gets even more rare, it seems like these days. So it's always... Wonderful to find someone who can um, be kind to others, even when they're struggling. Right. That's a a huge, admirable quality. Yeah, it was good. It was good for me to hear that. Mm. They would be in tears telling me these stories. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) What kinds of resistances? And I I guess I don't understand it because I just always have been, from the minute I got my um, license, it's just a question on it. And I'm like, yes, of course I would donate my organs. Why would I not? But what kinds of resistances do you find that people cite? Well, it's normally older people. I found Mm -hmm. that younger people, I mean, even kids in elementary school, from what I understand are very willing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Once they understand what's going to happen and why Mm -hmm. not do it. Right. Um, I did this senior expo for many years Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, a lot of older people there. And I had one lady say to me, well, what if I need them? (laughs) I don't think you're going to need them. Well, I told her, God will give you new ones when you come back. Yeah. So I think it's just a fear thing and not understanding what that process is. Yeah. That the doctors are there to save your life. Right. It's only when heart death when that patient is I was just filling out my I have a an advanced directive and I was doing my will and everything and I guess I never really thought about the fact well and I volunteer for hospice and this was in one of the trainings oh, that good. they have to keep sometimes they have to keep your body alive or keep on your organs functioning on a ventilator and right. so that's a thing that people don't want to do because they have this advanced directive and it, it gets to be these well I funny yeah, they have to understand yeah. that and also if it's the patient in pennsylvania it's a law if it's a patient's wish to become a donor mm-hmm. then they're required and that's hard for for family too right but 
CORE has told me, CORE is a center for organ recovery and education of uh-huh. Pittsburgh. They have said in all cases, <clears throat> when the family was kind of digging their heels in and didn't want to do this, right. like it was required yeah. because that patient wanted it. I requested it. They always thanked them afterwards. Mm-hmm. They were grateful that they had done this mm-hmm. and that their loved one had saved right. so many lives, right. enhanced so many lives. Yeah. I think it's a changing thing. I was talking to Mike Lewis too. It might've been for a hospice training, but I was talking to Mike Lewis about the way that funerals are changing. And I think that people for a long time felt weird about organ donation because in some way it might impact um, their funeral or their viewing and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. But that's just not a thing anymore. Well, they don't realize what happens once that patient gets to. Right. Yeah. Yep. I'm a big fan of organ donation. I didn't think about that either at the time. So, yeah. yeah, it's it's been quite an interesting experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. No, I would not give that up. With all the pain and the grief, I would not give right. up. Right, I can see it in your face. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I can see it. Hmm. Uh, I have a couple poems. One of the gals that uh, Josh had gone to school with, in fact who was in a class with her brother, she wrote a poem Mm -hmm. and posted it at his funeral. Another lady I have never met uh, wrote a poem, and I put that in there. And from CORE, I have information about which which organs and tissues are available for transplant, and a little bit about uh, living donation, too, which is a wonderful thing, and some donation myth. So in my poem, The Ode to Josh, is in there. Did you want to read any of it? Or no? Um, you don't have to. I, by any I means, could. If you want to, you're more than welcome to. Well, here's... Let me read this. Yeah. On July 19th, 1995, at work and in a hospital manager's meeting, I received a phone call from our transplant coordinator asking how long it would take us to get to Pittsburgh. When I looked at the room full of managers and answered, we can be there in three hours... Everyone in the room stood up and cheered and applauded, fully aware of the significance of that statement. To this day, I remember and appreciate the support I received from so many friends and co-workers. That in itself, that just little scene, that little snippet. Yeah. It's like goosebumps. Me too. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Um, Here's a picture of post-transplant with his dad. Oh, look at him. Still smiling. Yes. Smiling away. And Klondike. Um, and Klondike. <laughs> and in the beginning, oh, I had a picture. Oh. As soon as I found out he needed a transplant, we went. Sure. Got your picture taken. <laughs> yeah. With our dog. Yeah. I mean, Ode to Josh is pages long. Yeah. I wrote this over months and months. You read whatever you Let's like. See. To Alaska with Dad for hunting with Bo, hopes and plans that you made. Yeah, honey, I know. For all those things you so badly needed to do, you ran out of time. So now I offer this humble tribute to you. Greatest person I've known, the best kid that I've met, the closest to God on this earth I'll ever get. So honored to have known you, only child of mine. Wish it could have been me. Let you stay here, feeling fine. Up there greeting children, leaving earth at too young an age, helping them adjust to their new life, to turn their own page. Teach them as you did me to love without doubt. Show them white beaming light, your joyful visual shout. 
if all our precious memories make a king's palace bright, in heaven there's a throne, or at least a motorcycle, mm -hmm. in dazzling white light. If all these things exist as I know they must, then you surely fit, and there's a place near the pearly gates on your bike where you sit. With unending love and respect, Mom. That was hard. Yeah, <laughs> just to read it out loud. Have yeah. you read it out loud before? Oh, uh, no. No? Here, oh, let me oh. get you tissue. Actually, I did read it to Monica and Holly. We were all bawling. <laughs> the whole thing. Thank I, I you. I have a box of tissues, but there you go. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Yeah, that was hard. But, uh, yeah, I just poured my heart out in that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Was, that was that was therapeutic, too. Yeah. But then Holly had read that when I had read it to her, and she said, that needs to go in the book, too. Yeah. But, of course, during this whole process with Josh, yeah. that was just not something that yeah. I would even think about. Yeah. But thanks to him, you know, it has brought me to this point. Yeah. I just love him. Yeah. <laughs> I do too, and I never even met him. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. I will put pictures up of it. I will put um, links to it. Is it on Amazon? Let me get it. It is on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and Balboa Press. Barnes & Noble are the ones that are... Mm -hmm. the most familiar and they can read the first chapter oh, okay. and i think maybe there's some end material too on okay. amazon on amazon okay yeah. but i think it's instagram and facebook i um, tend to love i love instagram um for if i'm going to push anything on social media i've just now started with twitter and that's only because of the type of content that i'm creating okay seems to i seem to be able to um get conversations started on twitter oh that's good um so that's kind of what i'm looking to do but i love instagram um and i don't really use anything else i use word of mouth and i've done really well with that fantastic so yeah yeah so well, i'm get... looking forward to learning how to yeah. use all these things when yeah. it comes to no yeah the social media i totally feel you i mean my my uh familiarity with technology peaked around 1998 so <laughs> you know <laughs> i'm a... This is a podcast about parenting, and any podcast about parenting would be incomplete if it failed to make space for parents who have lost their own children. I cannot imagine the universe of grief that comes with an experience like Debbie's, but I also am not entirely sure that I can understand the joy that lights up her face and her voice when she talks about him. Debbie has a lot of things to say about parenting and about her son. One of the things she said that stuck out to me was the fact that she and her family waited eight months for a set of lungs for Josh, only to get to Pittsburgh in a frenzy to find out that the lungs were not viable after all. Eight months of hope hung on a pair of lungs that turned out to have vomit in them. I think most parents don't know how they could possibly live without their children or rather with the death of their child. And yet Debbie talks about finding hope after she lost the thing she loved the most in this world. And she did that, she said, by reinventing herself. And if there were ever a more perfect summary of the entire theme of this podcast, it would be that. If you've been enjoying the episodes of Two Moms Day Drinking so far, I'd like to invite you to stop over to patreon.com slash twomomsdaydrinking and consider becoming a patron of the show for as little as a dollar a month. By doing so, you can unlock bonus content from various episodes, behind-the-scenes production stills, and more great benefits. So stop over and check it out. <laughs>
The music for this podcast was written and produced by my father, Bob Gross, on his goddamn electric ukulele. I'm Stacey Gross, and this has been Two Moms Day Drinking. See you next week.